I think it's always worth reiterating how much power you should have as the interviewee Mm -hmm. during the interview process. Um, From first glance, it might look like you're you're at a disadvantage, right? Like you're trying to basically convince someone to pay you a living wage so that you could take care of your needs and exist in this world. But at the same time, um, you should realize too that you are interviewing them. Like you're offering them something Mm -hmm. special as well. So it's just as important for you to take full advantage of the interview process. So if they're asking you questions, you should be asking questions back. And this article kind of lists out five questions to ask um, that could help you based off of the answers, decide or see if this is a good fit for you. Tonic.ai's synthetic data platform equips developers with the data they need to build products effectively while achieving compliance and security. Shorten development cycles, eliminate cumbersome data pipeline overhead, and mathematically guarantee the privacy of your data with Tonic.ai. Please visit tonic.ai slash stackoverflow for more information. Check out that link. Let them know we sent you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, joined as I often am by my wonderful crew of co-hosts, Ciora Ford, Cassie Williams, and Matt Kiernander. How's it going, y'all? Hello. So the first link here in the news section is the great GPU shortage is allegedly over, written by an old colleague of mine from The Verge, um, this guy, Sean Hollister, who I can confirm is the kind of PC gaming nerd that has been keeping a spreadsheet, <laughs> tracking the availability and prices of all <laughs> GPUs at several big box stores for however many months. He's got like a few charts in here that he made. Um, but yeah, this has been a, one of the really interesting sort of like knock on effects for people who work in software and technology of the crypto boom and now bust is that. These graphics units that were meant for high-end PC gaming or video editing or 3D modeling um, ended up being really good at mining for cryptocurrency. And so they all got bought up. And uh, now I guess they're coming back on the market. So um, would love to hear your takes. Or if you're in the market for one, are you going to snap? Is now the time to snap one up? I am in the market and I'm excited. Uh, My well, this might be a cynical question. Do you think it's over because crypto is down? Um, I do think so. I think a lot of the air has gone out of the crypto market. There were a lot mm. of people mining coins two months ago that those coins are now worth nothing or they're worth pennies on yeah. the dollar. And I also read, I don't know if this is true, that a lot of folks had maybe sort of like bought their mining rigs on margin like used a loan or used leverage to get them Mm. um and now as some of those big bets are coming unwound they're having to sell their mining rigs uh, and things like that Mm. and so gpus are re-entering the market in that way there's also allegedly nvidia and amd have actually overestimated the demand uh for the graphics card so they ordered a hell of a lot from um uh tsmc and now we're trying to kind of renege on some of those orders because there's there's too many, which is fantastic yeah. for us. Dang, great yeah. for great us. For the consumer. Oh no, a sale. I'm laughing because we just talked about this a little while ago with Cassidy. I remember <laughs> you were saying you were in the market for one and just couldn't find one that was like 
reasonably priced right so i'm really happy for you (laughs) thanks thanks i'm happy for me too (laughs) this is like um the software nerd pc gamers version of what's happening in the broader economy which is kind of interesting which is that the pandemic arrived everything went you know changed sometimes factories closed supply routes closed down and for a while you know the supply chain made meant lots of things were really hard to get there was a chip shortage we had episodes about the chip shortage and all now the pendulum is swinging the other way like matt said people ordered a ton and now all of a sudden they're getting all this inventory but in some cases demand has now waned so another example is the big box stores and like home depots of the world could not keep enough merchandise on the shelves now it's the opposite they have too much inventory and they're starting to do big sales because they were you know kind of over ordered so Hard Which to is great because I need to do some work. <laughs> I was, That's I was, in the market for home repair, GPU. What are, what are you not in the market It was for? very <laughs> rough last year, but right now it's great because, yeah, just like you said, where, where we were saying, okay, well, th- this repair is probably going to cost us X amount of money. And mm-hmm. then we went to the store, the hardware store this past weekend. We we're like, wait a minute. This is like thousands of dollars cheaper than we thought it was going to be purely because everything's on sale now. and. I'm not complaining. I'm very yeah. happy. Well, that is another thing I've been reading a bunch about and thinking a bunch about. It's like people keep saying, are we in a recession? Or are we going into a recession? You know. And I read a good story today which said, like, in every other sort of classic, you know, recession or depression, what you see is inflation go up and also unemployment really go up. And this one is a little bit strange because the stock market is way down, inflation is way up, but the number of people who are unemployed has not gone huh. way up. In fact, you know, there's still sort of a shortage of labor. So it's a weird one where there's like a disconnect and maybe in a good way, like the stock market does not equal the economy or the health of the consumer and consumers still have a ton of savings and a lot of job opportunities. So it's an unusual recession we're entering. Um, Hopefully that means with all these people with jobs, they can stimulate the economy by buying things and it won't be as heavily impacted or impacting as other ones. I think so too. Because, you know, like for the decades before that, or there was kind of the opposite, which is like the stock market's going boom, but like wages were stagnant. Right. And like now we've seen wages change a lot. So I'm hoping that like these two things are not necessarily connected and they can sort of move independently, but we'll see. It's a good point because the housing market is also allegedly going to be going through some trouble soon. Like I know in New Zealand, for any New Zealand listeners out there, um, the average house price decreased by 4% over one a one month period, which historically that is like the leading that's a big um, drop it's a huge drop and anytime that's happened there's been a huge it it, it was it's either a recession or a housing bubble burst and Mm -hmm. so far nothing has happened yet house prices has dropped just dropped so it's it's a very weird time to be in because we've got all these things pointing to one direction, but we do have um, high employment rates and everything else so right i don't know (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that's right. We lived through a, a once in a century pandemic. Uh, that was pretty weird. And now there's all these, you know, <laughs> secondary sort of effects. Like, how will this, you know, unravel? And like, you know, what what will it do to the economy? Like, we're, we're gonna. I think, yeah, I think it's gonna be new. So, Andrew's I'm sorry, that was pretty well. weird. It's such a fun way to describe the pandemic. It was pretty weird. I, thought. <laughs> I, I feel like that would be a Google review somewhere of like the the 2020 pandemic. Kind of weird, Ben Popper. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the second link here, how low-code demands more creativity from developers. Yeah, so I'm writing an article at the moment for um, basically how low-code is 
might impact developers moving forward. And doing some of the research has been interesting to see what kind of people's takes on it are because everyone seems to have a different opinion. I'm quite positive on the impact of low code and no code on software developers. I think it's going to take out basically a lot of like automation and um, uh, I, I guess grunt work um, that is typically tasked for us and we get to focus on more um, like creative, unique, interesting problems, which is where we add the most value. Um, it'll basically free us up to do um, more unique work and then other citizen developers uh, part of the organization will be able to kind of like take control and have these tools um, automate a lot of processes for us. And I'm very curious as to around what everyone else thinks. Like, do you use low code tools at the moment? Are you quite encouraging of using them in the workplace? Like what is your, what is your take on it? I think they're a good thing in general. I, I, I admit I've had some not good experiences where I'll make something and then I want to customize it and the tool can't handle it. And then I break mm -hmm. everything because I write the code and then I can't even use the <laughs> tool anymore. Stuff like that. But in general, anything that makes more people makers in, on the internet or otherwise, I think is a good thing to have. And it reduces a lot of barriers to entry for new roles and, and yeah. products and concepts and everything. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah, you make a good point. Yeah, I think it's also a matter of determining what are you trying to accomplish? And like Cassidy was saying, how much creative control do you want over the thing that you're trying to do? Because I do find that with a lot of these like low code or even like um, any tool that's supposed to make things like a lot easier, sometimes that's the issue is that you feel like you don't have as much control over like customizing things and making it exactly the way you want. So that's not going to be every project or task you're working on. You're not going to need full creative control and customizability with yeah. everything you're yeah. going to do. So I think you have to determine like, is that important for you right now or, or not? Yeah. Um, and I'll say another thing that sort of happens, kind of opens up the scope of what is a developer. Like when we used to do the Stack Overflow developer survey every year, we would pass that to the data team, which was a, a group of folks from engineering, internal engineering, and they would work on it and then pass it back to us. Now the marketing team has its own data analyst who's comfortable in Python and RStudio who does that yeah. work. I don't know if he's using low code tools, but you know, like the work of a developer has passed to someone who doesn't necessarily have that title. Um, and same thing for like marketing operations. We use a ton of different tools there. And that person was a Drupal developer and like, you know, has been like sort of building and hacking on these tools for many years. So um, I don't know if that quite fits your description amount of low code, but it, like it kind of fits a little bit of what you're saying, which is like, how does software development move sort of horizontally into these other parts of the business and people figure out how to automate or um, do data analysis um, using their own toolkit? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was looking at a tool called AppSmith recently, and it's an open source low code tool for building internal tools. Mm. And oh, so cool. you can pass in any data source, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet, a CSV file, an API or anything like that. And it basically just has a bunch of UIs that can pull from it right away. And then you can build a little dashboard or application with it. And it also has like a JavaScript editor if you want to customize the mm. data or, or what you're seeing even more. And I thought it was a really interesting, it almost feels like partway between the low code and, and code because it has so much customizability. But I think 
this is a direction that a lot of products in general are going in because you want people to be able to build stuff without having to have a lot of education under their belts if possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder though if what's how to strike a balance with that as far mm-hmm. like coming from yeah. a product perspective. I think a lot of places companies that do these low code tools don't necessarily make it so that you can also customize a ton if you want to, or you can add your right. own code on top of it if you want to. And I wonder if like this product you just mentioned, if companies are moving in that direction and how likely it is that we're going to see more of that. Cause I think that would be best if you have the ability to just get up and running quickly without having to have a whole lot of background knowledge or conversely, if you do want something that's going to make it easy to start off, but over time you want to add to it and make it your own even more so. I wonder if there's a lot of companies that will be that currently are able to do that or are moving in that direction. Right. right. There's a company called Webflow, which basically it's very similar to Squarespace and Wix, where you can yeah. um, you know, it's I think it's a really good example of what a great low-code tool is because it provides you like it exposes you to like CSS properties like margins, um, flexbox, flexgrid. Um, sorry, CSS grid and a whole bunch of other like developer specific terms, but it gives you like GUI toggles to kind of go through anything. So if you're non-technical, you can just kind of like click around and do things. And then for developers as well, it also gives you the um, opportunity to completely export out all the code. So you can go through and then just load it up in an IDE and then like tinker with it that way. Um, And I think this might be more of a unique example where like it is possible to export out your website's code and host it somewhere and do the thing and other things like AppSmith or more more specific tools. Like it's it's a little bit harder to just give out everything and then um, kind of give away that that control because you might be dealing with more proprietary processes or APIs or whatever whatever else that might be. Yeah, there's one other website I wanted to share and it's called kernel and it's basically a marketplace for marketplace for startup ideas where people will put in different ideas. And then if anybody wants to work on it, they can say like, Oh, let's chat. And, and it's just specifically for ideas. And I was chatting with the creators of this and nobody on their team are engineers. They built the entire website from like the users, the tags, the forums, the upvotes, everything is built with no code tools. Mm. And I thought it was very, very interesting because it, I didn't think it was possible. Like I knew, I knew you could build something. It's kind of like what Cioro said. I didn't realize you could customize it that much. And and it's a pretty impressive website yeah. to have been made with no code or cool. no code by their team. Kernel.co, is that it? Uh, it's kern.al. Kern.al, okay. I mean, I think that's, that's, that is really what the whole low code, no code movement is about is it's just it's making the web more accessible to people for people to come in and do stuff like this without having to rely on you know like a boutique software developer or um you know it 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 gives them the autonomy to create stuff as you said like it allows more makers to be on the internet which i think is an only a good thing for everyone right yeah and so this this is like are these early stage or open source projects? Like why would I, what would motivate me to work on this? Just curiosity or I become part of a team or I get some shares or why would I work on something I find at kernel? Oh, it's so it's people sharing startup ideas and then Mm -hmm. like you can get validation where people will be like, Oh, this already exists or, Oh, you should fix this or that, or, or this is a more product market fit than what you're thinking, something like that. And then you can also find uh, co-founders or hires that want to work on it with you. Interesting. 
Yeah. Could get messy if you contribute some ideas early on and then, I, you know. Probably. The company but, goes to a billion, but it's, it's cool that people want to do that. Yeah. it's Honestly, I kind of just lightly subscribe to to high-level updates. Matt, you're laughing right. so hard. But it's, anyway, it, it's been wholesome so far anyway. Okay. Very cool. I was looking at the uh, some of the companies that they've got there and there's one called Flush Hour, which reviews and... Uh, it's it's reviews for public bathrooms essentially, and it's got one of those like construction <laughs> porta potties. <laughs> I just thought that was quite funny. I'm sorry if I threw anyone off with that. Hey, it's a good idea. You always want to know before you try a public restroom. I want to see how many stars <laughs> it has. All right, there's a cool link here for our last discussion topic. Interview the interviewer. This comes from the GitHub blog, um, the README project, which is full of great stuff. I think Cassie, you had mentioned it before. Mm-hmm. Um, this was written by VP of product at Vercel, Kathy Korovec, and it's encouraging you to sort of turn the tables during an interview and ask some questions of the person who's interviewing you. So yeah, let me stop there after setting the stage and hear from the three of you. If this is something you've done, if you think this sounds like a good idea, if you think this sounds scary, what's, what's your take? Yeah, I added this to the, to our show notes mm-hmm. because, um, I think it's always worth reiterating how much power you should have as the interviewee mm-hmm. during the interview process. Um, from first glance, it might look like you're in you're at a disadvantage, right? Like you're trying to basically convince someone to pay you a living wage so that you could take care of your needs and exist in this world. But at the same time, um, you should realize too that you are interviewing them like you're offering them something Mm -hmm. special as well so it's just as important for you to take full advantage of the interview process so if they're asking you questions you should be asking questions back and this article kind of lists out five questions to ask um that could help you based off of the answers decide or see if this is a good fit for you um and i'm like i said i'm a big proponent of doing this kind of thing. So I just wanted to like, I don't know, discuss some of the questions here, or if you have any questions that you like to ask during interviews that you feel like help you out during the process, I'm definitely open to hearing all this. Yeah. I think that this is a, a very important thing for people to do. And and just like you said, Ciara, you, you often are just like, please give me a job. I want to pay for things. <laughs> but also- <laughs> Companies hire because they need a person and companies want to hire you when they're interviewing you because that means that they don't have to interview any more people. Interviewing is a very time intensive and expensive process for a lot of companies. And so if you do well, Mm -hmm. they are so happy because they get to hire someone and, and move on with their lives. And so it is very much a two way street. And I do think that just because of, especially U.S. culture in general, but in general, there's the dynamic of you should be grateful that you're even getting this job opportunity at a lot of Mm. companies. Right. But it is very important to be able to turn those tables. I think in the earlier article, we just were talking about the one about low code. You know, they were just sort of um, reflecting on some of the bigger trends. And it said that the unemployment rate among tech workers, or maybe it's more specifically software developers, is 1.7%. So 
essentially what that means is like, you know, de- demand for great workers is extremely high. The number of people who can't find a job is extremely low. And so if there was ever a time when you should feel empowered to say like, <laughs> you need to convince me I need this job as opposed to the other around, like now, now is that time. I, I also think like, if you come in with an informed question about what the work is going to be like, and you know, it's sort of based on your past experiences and you could say, you know, I, I know for a fact that I don't like to do this, but I'm you know, kind of better at that, or this is the style I work in, you know, that that's a good way to figure out if there's actually a fit, you know, like you can take, mm. if you're just trying to impress them, you might get the job and then be miserable there. You know, right. if you can come in with a question that's sort of like, this is kind of the things I've done in the past that I enjoyed and things that I didn't enjoy. So I would want to know like, what's it going to be like working at your, at X company? Like, are we going to do it this way or that way? Um, you know, that can also sort of just avoid the mismatch, which is as Cassie pointed out, good in the long term because hiring somebody who leaves after six months is like the worst outcome for the business. They wasted mm-hmm. all that time and energy hiring you and spending all that money and then you're gone and they're, they're right back to square one. So you're kind of doing everybody a favor, making sure that it's a good fit and also displaying some of your knowledge and some of your maybe um, curiosity, like you've, you've investigated the company a little bit. You have some questions about that. Yeah. I thought this first question was so funny. How will I fail? I was like, that's a bold question to ask <laughs> to you. But yeah. I do think it is a good question to ask, or at least um, sometimes what I'll say is like, what are the difficult parts of this role? Mm-hmm. Stuff, something like that that's basically essentially the same thing, just because it gives you a good idea of some of the role bumps you might come walk into. And it also lets you know how deeply the interviewer has thought about the position too, which mm-hmm. is one of right. the points that the author of the article lead to. I, yeah. I think yeah. with a lot of job interviews and stuff like that, you can say, what will I do in this job? And they'll list out 20 different things or whatever it is. Hopefully you're not doing 20 different things, but there'll be a lot of stuff that they'll be like, you can do this and this and this. But then when you flip the table and said, what will be the fail criteria of this? That is generally a very discrete, small amount of things that will give you a good right. idea of like what you actually need to be delivering on to be successful in the role. So like, I, I do love this question as well. Um, Another one that I really like to ask as well is like, how, do, how does the company handle failure? And I think this is kind of referenced in the, the third question that they've got there. Can you share an example of something that the team uh, that didn't go well and what do you do to course correct? And I, I love hearing about that kind of thing as an interviewee because it gives me a good idea of like generally the culture and how things are handled. You know, are there processes for when things do go wrong? How do you support the people that did make those mistakes to make sure that those won't happen again? Because that's, it's much more of an indication of like the processes within the company that yeah. make a big difference. Yeah, for sure. One of the questions that I really like to ask, and I might have mentioned it on the podcast before, but we'll do it again, is what is the most important thing to the company? The product, the employees, or the customers? Hmm. There's no wrong answer to this question. And and just because like one is the most important over the other ones doesn't mean that the other ones aren't important. But it's interesting to see how a company prioritizes and what the number one thing is. And then also if that answer is consistent across all the interviewees or, or interviewers that, that you're speaking with, where if, for example, you were to interview at Amazon, because one of their core values is so deeply customer obsession, if you ask that question, pretty much everybody on the team will say, oh, customers are the number one thing. But right. if you talk to another company, they might say, oh, employees, as long as the employees are happy, that's what matters. Then some people will say like the product, we want to get to IPO and, and go in that direction. Yeah. None of those answers are wrong once again, but, 
by asking it and hearing people's explanations and then seeing if it's consistent across the team, it mm-hmm. speaks well to the company's organization and communication and culture and just transparency in general and how they think about things. Mm, good point. All right. Uh, as I say, every time I promise to shout out people who write to us. So we got an email uh, from Jason saying, cut to the chase. Stop putting the teaser clip at the beginning of each podcast. Your podcast is the right length anyway. So don't waste my time. <laughs> uh, we'll take it under consideration, Jason. If anybody is listening to this podcast and would like to weigh in, and if I get multiple emails saying, get rid of the cold intro, maybe we will. I don't know. Who knows? We have to make the cold intro like, welcome to the cold intro or something on this episode <laughs> yeah. in particular. Yeah. yeah. This is specifically yeah, it doesn't for the pump you up that enough. emailed in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, the next cold intro will be me just reading that email verbatim to troll. <laughs> yes. um, that would actually be pretty good. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. All right. We've got a few recs here. Um, two that were mentioned, Smith and Colonel. Uh, so we talked about those on the show. Both interesting. We'll have them in the show notes. Um, and the last one is from uh, Devocate, creating more equitable communities. Yeah, no, this is from me. I am a big proponent of open salary, transparency, equitable compensation. And so whenever I see people making an effort to uh, solve that problem within the tech space, I, I would like to kind of give it, give it a shout out. So um, this particular survey is for people who work in the developer relations industry, whether you're a developer advocate, um, a technical content creator, or a technical writer, developer experience, any, anything kind of under the DevRel umbrella. Um, they're basically doing an open survey to try and get a better understanding of compensation data within um, the developer relations space. It's a fairly new, uh, not fairly new, but it's the, the data around developer relations hasn't been as well established as, say, for example, software engineers or um, anything uh, that's had a longer tenure in the tech market. So any kind of data that we can get around this is very, very helpful for people getting into the industry, understanding kind of what they're worth, being able to use this data in a meaningful way when they're going through the salary negotiation process. So it takes five minutes to do. Um, everyone is part of that community. If you are part of that community, would really appreciate it. So please head on over to devocate.com. The link will be in the show notes below. And um, help out your community today if you're comfortable doing so. All right. Cool. Help Matt ensure he's getting paid fairly. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> Matt needs to know. Also, speaking of just on the transparency thing, I don't know if either of you have used Cal.com. It's it's very similar to Calendly. It's open source Calendly, pretty much. Yeah. They are very open source and radically transparent and stuff. And if you go to Cal.com slash open, they have all open statistics about their company internals and they're they're wildly transparent about it. And it, I really mm-hmm. respect it. It's it's neat all the graphs that they have on that yeah. page. I cool. I always like during these discussions wonder if I would thrive in that environment, like Stack Overflow is by far the most transparent place in terms of like sharing what's going on with the company and the financials. I find right. that like to be great as an employee to know how we're doing poorly or well and like really think, you know, not have that obfuscated in some way. But I always think to myself, like if I worked at a place where I could see everybody's salary, it would just be like a nest of jealousy and be like, I don't know. I just, I'm just too old school, I guess, like, or I need to experience it for myself and then see how it goes. Cause I feel like it would be very, I feel stressed out just thinking about it. I feel very stressed. Hmm. 
That's fair. Well, I, another episode. We'll get into it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I want to hear other takes. I just wanted to. Yeah. I had a confession. I needed yeah, to make yeah. that confession. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, I am Ben Popper. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. My name is Zero Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Auth0. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. I'm Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. I do developer experience at Remote and at OSS Capital. And I'm Matt Kinander. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R, YouTube, Twitter, all the spaces. We will talk to you soon.